Hey everyone, welcome to the Park Hill Church Podcast. My name is Evan Wickham, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and this episode is a special one. I'm glad you're listening, because this is the two talks we recorded from our August House of Learning, which was all about disability in the church, and I think you're in for a treat with this one. Um, So the first talk is sort of a theology of disability that I gave. It's about 50 minutes long. It's not super short, uh, but it's important stuff. I invite you to listen, but stay tuned to the end because I think the best, we save the best for last with uh, Pastor Aaliyah Persley. She gives her testimony as a person with disabilities and a pastor, and her disability is profound but largely unseen, which has a unique set of difficulties attached to it. So I hope you can listen to the whole thing. But before we get to those talks, I want to give a little pitch for this upcoming House of Learning. Next Sunday, September 24th, from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., this month's House of Learning is all about sexuality, specifically how our church cares about sexuality. Our church is passionately committed to the historic sexual ethic of Jesus, which includes marriage as defined by Jesus and the historic church. It's one man, one woman in a whole person covenant bond for life, and any sexual activity outside of that marriage is considered sexual immorality by Jesus and the scriptures and church tradition. So the the immediate question arises, what about the LGBTQ community? And so that's what we want to talk about with pastoral care and a humble posture to listen September 24th. And we're going to hear from people who are same-sex attracted and gay in our church that have chosen to live in obedience to the historic sexual ethic of Jesus. Uh, So the title of the upcoming House of Learning is How Our Church Cares About Sexuality, and the little description is, what would it look like to be a church that supports and encourages gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other same-sex attracted Christians, as well as those who love them, so that all in our church might be empowered to live in gospel unity while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality? It's quite a question, isn't it? And so, uh, yeah, there's going to be several presentations that'll be short and to the point uh, from the lived experience of individuals within our church uh, who are gay and following Jesus faithfully under the historic sexual ethic of Jesus including one couple who's married in what's known as a mixed orientation marriage, which is where it's one man and one woman who are married, where one of them is gay and the other one is straight. So it'll be interesting to hear from them and how they are following Jesus faithfully as a married couple. So suffice it to say, this one is touchy and tender and um, controversial, but we want to approach it humbly. Like I always like to say, Topics are only controversial to a lot of people because they matter so much to a lot of people. And chances are you or someone you know and love is directly touched by this conversation, whether it's their sexuality or someone they know. So I would love to invite you to come sign up for that House of Learning at parkhillsd.church. You can find our House of Learning link there on the website. It's 20 bucks to come in the door and have dinner, or you can pay 10 bucks and skip dinner. But we hope you can come. Uh, to that, September 24th. Uh, So, without any further delay, here is our August House of Learning talks on disability in the church. Hope you enjoy. Lord, we need you, all of us, equally. And I pray that our need for you would be communicated and celebrated and shared tonight, and we would worship you with our minds, bodies, time, and attention 
And even in the way we listen to each other tell our stories, would you be glorified? Take delight in your children today. And may we delight in each other. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just start here with a quote from Amos Young. He is a, a disability scholar at Fuller Theological Seminary. He says, the challenge of learning to know, to be with, and care for people with disabilities is nothing less than learning to know and be with God. And I think that's absolutely true. So I want to come right out of the gate and ask, what if we, what if we all believe that? The challenge of learning to know and be with and care for people with disabilities is nothing less than learning to know and be friends with God, like fellowship with God. What if we believed that? What would that look like? What would, friend, what would that friendship look like for you? Wherever you're coming from in this conversation, I don't know, maybe you're coming, I don't know how many degrees you are close to disability. Maybe it's, maybe it's part of your lived experience. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe you're here with a heart for disability, but it's always felt like it's been once removed. Uh, from your life, uh, what would friendship, that friendship look like in your personal life? This is what we're talking about. Again, this is a first step in this conversation we believe a church, we as a church have to make, and it's, it's, it's this. Really, we want, tonight, the goal is to think theologically about disability in the church. Uh, so right away, the obvious question, I want to kind of just knock this out of the way first. Preliminary question, what right do I have as a non-disabled man uh, to give a talk about theology and disability. Um, the complexities behind the wide-ranging disability labels should make us very cautious of making generalizations. Even in this room, I remember one of the first folks to come in tonight was like, oh, it's disability and the church. What kind of disability? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes. We're, we want all of it to be in view tonight. And I realize that is brave because it's so diverse. Uh, and so we should be very cautious about talking about disability uh, apart from people with disabilities' actual voices speaking in the conversation, right? So I can only say as a non-disabled man that I, I don't claim to represent people with disabilities. I'm thrilled that tonight one of our pastors with a disability is going to be sharing her story at the end of the night. So there's going to be my talk and then discussions together and then Aaliyah's talk. And I think it's going to be very sweet. So here's what I can say. I've been touched enough by disability that I'm motivated to rethink our traditional theological ideas about it. In fact, in a really important sense, I think it's my identity as a non-disabled pastor married to a non-disabled woman with whom I parent five non-disabled kids, and that makes me an ideal person to call attention to this conversation because it's precisely people like me, the non-disabled majority, who have remained either willfully ignorant or unwilling to bring this conversation to the front of churches. So for that reason alone, I feel responsibility to say, hey church, let's talk about this. Uh, we don't have an expert here, but we have a pastor. <laughs> so let's talk about this. And by the way, I'm coming to this conversation like, like many of you, without much experience with disabled people and without all the answers to all the challenges disabled people have to face. And in spite of my ignorance, in spite of my lack of knowledge, I choose to show up for this conversation because I believe becoming present to people with disabilities is to become present to God. So and this is the beginning of thinking theologically about, about this, and it's a starting point for us. So remember, starting point tonight. Um, there's going to be a lot of questions, and we're not even going to have like an official Q&A because we just don't have enough answers. So, so this is being known and knowing. Uh, so 
So Christian understanding of disability, and this is from Dr. McNair at Cal Baptist, a disability theologian. Number one, you have to understand the individual with impairments and how they relate to God. And then number two, the individual with impairments relating to themselves. And then the individual with impairments relating to the community they're part of. Really, it's those three things. Notice how that's all framed. We move from just, oh, it's in someone's body to, oh, it's in society. Oh, it's, it's all about relationship. It's all, this is all framed as relationships here. And there are tons of stories from Scripture and texts from Scripture we can get into in each of these, and we will get into some of them tonight. But the key takeaway is that bottom line. That here, here it is. All Scripture applies to all people, period. Really letting that do its work in our hearts. All scripture applies to everyone equally. And we're Christians, so we're like, oh yeah, the Bible's for everyone. We nod, right? Uh, but we're also humans with biases. And we have fears of people who look and act and talk different than us. Which means it's very easy for us to fall into thinking that scriptures apply to some people, but not to others, even subconsciously. We spiritually exclude people subconsciously. And, and I'll give one example right away. Genesis 1. What's a huge takeaway from Genesis 1 about the image of God? Humans are made in the image of God. Uh, all humans are made in God's image. How many of you agree with that? All humans are made in God's image. Great. So I'll speak personally. I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, well, look, there's obviously an image of God. I look like me. I have, I have two eyes. I have ears and I have... Uh, uh, my, I, I still have hair, and I like look at myself, and the things I like, don't like, and I go, I'm made in the image of God, and I don't question it. I don't question it. Uh, that's obviously the image of God, because I see myself all the time, and I'm the normal thing that I see, right? Um, but then I turn uh, to my friend Emily up in Portland, who would, would sit in a wheelchair off to the left of the stage where I would lead worship at Westside before we planted Park Hill, and um, who had a severe mental disability and physical. And I'm like, and so I look at Emily, I look at myself in the mirror and there's the image of God and I look at Emily and suddenly my natural question is to go, wait, do I know what the image of God is? Oh, what is the image of God? And suddenly I'm, I'm questioning it. I have to think about this now. What makes someone the image of God? Because in my pride, I see the image of God in myself, but when I look at others, I wonder if the image of God is there, subconsciously. So a truly Christian understanding of disability must begin with the firm declaration that uh, we could stand up the most able-bodied person you know next to the most severely disabled person you know and declare with the deepest conviction that they share the fullness of the image of God absolutely equally in their bodies. That is square one of this whole, this whole thing. To do this thing like Christians, we have to declare that deep in our bones. Now, lots of people have questions. Well, what is the image of God? What does it really mean? There's lots of ideas. But the bottom line is every human is the image of God. And the Bible applies to all people. And when it teaches humans are made in the image of God, that means all of us create in the image of God. And, and when we actually declare that, when we preach that gospel to ourselves, that every human body no matter how that body presents to you, is made in the image of, fully, not less than any other made in the image of God. When we believe that to our core, there's 
so much beauty that flows out of that, you guys. So, so let's unpack those three things, a Christian understanding of disability. Remember, the first one, the first one is the individual with impairments in relation to God. And again, Dr. McNair has been so helpful for me in this. First of all, I want to repeat myself. All humans in God's image. That's where it starts. Created in God's image. And I, I say this again because it's fascinating how this is not obvious. It's not obvious to everyone that all humans are made in God's image equally. Dr. McNair talks about how he speaks about disability all over the world, and he traveled from Zambia to Singapore one year, and he trained pastors in this. And in both places, different cultures, Singapore and Zambia, and in both cultures, he was approached by theology professors and pastors, and they're all like, I never realized people with disabilities are made in the image of God, like pastors and theologians. And so I I want to say if you truly believe this and live your life with this at the forefront, that people with disabilities are made in the image of God, there are a huge amount of things that flow out of that which have the power to change the way we as a church interact with people of every embodied experience you can imagine. And then, and then B, again, we're, 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 under the, we're under the category of the individual with impairments in relation to God. And B, people with disabilities are in need of salvation. I know this seems, this seems uh, elementary, but let's let this sink in. They're in need of salvation just like everyone else. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it also says in Romans 3.22 that all are made right through believing in Jesus. All people are made right through believing in Jesus, no matter who you are. And obviously we can get into a conversation about the age of accountability and responsibility and all that. But the bottom line People with disabilities are equally invited by God to respond in faith to the person of Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit's power for life just like everyone else. And so here's what that means. The degree to which the church doesn't engage in evangelism toward people with disabilities, lovingly bringing the gospel to the disability community, that's the degree to which the church is disobeying Jesus. Let that sink in a second. We need to honor the dignity and worth of all people with every kind of disability. Honor them enough to compel us to bring the life-saving gospel in relationships with all of them, just as much as anyone else we're concerned about. And uh, so, so, and then C, the individual with disabilities needs, needs to hear the gospel truth that Personal sin is not the cause of disability. Now, uh, technically, you know, a person can do violence to someone and cause a disability on them. Uh, but so there is a situation where I can sin against someone and give them a disability. But is the fact that I'm, let's say I'm a pathological liar or like a secret sinner of some kind, does that imply my child is going to be born with a disability or that I will end up with one? Well, the disciples thought so. Do you know this? The disciples thought so, but Jesus corrected them big time. And in John chapter 9, John chapter 9 is a key text in, in the disability conversation because it's all about this man born blind. And, and they were like, why, Jesus, why is this man born blind? Is it because of his parents' sin or his? Which one? Which one, Jesus? And Jesus was like, not remotely. 
No one sinned here, not his parents, not him. This happened so God's hand would be revealed through his life, period. And the disciples, they weren't just making up this like karma religion. It was big back then. The Pharisees Pharisees later like accused the blind man, we don't want to listen to you because he's like, I was blind, now I see. And the Pharisees are like, we don't listen to you, you were born in sin. So there was this really bad worldview at work in that day. People all over the world in many countries today still believe this. In the psychology world, they call this the moral model of disability, where because of something you did, there's something bad happening to you. And people still believe this. We hear, we hear this even in like America, folk America. Like a, ki- a child with disabilities is born to a family and people say, people say things like, what did I do to deserve this, you know? As if there's a link between someone's sin and their disability. But Jesus explicitly rejects this. He's like, neither his parents sinned nor he did, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. McNair talks about a time when he visited an institution for the disabled in Serbia, you can imagine, just institution in in Serbia, and there was a young woman there who had a typical, sized, a typical sized head and a very small underdeveloped body. And the translator introduced McNair. And this young woman with this condition, she says through the translator, she's like, why am I like this? And McNair just looked at her and said, I have no idea. Whether God allowed it or he made you this way, I have no idea. The only thing I know is that from John chapter 9, when Jesus was asked why the guy was born blind, Jesus' response, so the works of God would be seen in your life. So the only thing I can say is the works of God might be seen in your life. And the translator gave that to the woman, and the woman, she thought for a moment, and she started to get weepy-eyed, and she's like, I've seen the works of God in my life. So he's like, I don't know why you are the way you are, but God does, and he uses it that his works might be expressed in your life. That's John 9. You guys just meditate on John 9 in light of your body and who you are as a loved child of God. And then next, D, uh, the disability is not the result of a lack of faith either. It's not the result of your sin, and it's not the result of no faith. So there's all kinds of churches that will kind of say that it is, right? The reason why you have a disability is because you don't have enough faith. If you did, you could ask God, he'd heal you. And then we try to force God's hand through faith, like, oh, if I just, oh, God, can't you see my faith? But that's not the way it works. In charismatic circles, it's common to hear the phrase, in the Gospels, Jesus heals everyone he meets. Pray for healing, right? It's commonly heard. Actually, the stories of healing in the Bible are a huge conversation in disability theology. Disability theologians have read those texts and it's generated serious hope and equally serious despair. Good and godly people read the healing stories and they're inspired and they're livid with anger. The topic of healing is so messy in disability theology. But when you actually look at the stories of Jesus' healing, you see some interesting things. You know, the, the centurion in Luke 7, he's like, Jesus, you have authority, go heal my son. Jesus is like, all right, uh, wow, I'm amazed at your faith. I haven't seen that much faith in Israel. Go, your servant's healed. And it's like, 
like that. But then go back to John 9. John 9, the man born blind. Notice, when you read John 9, there is no faith there. The guy's just born blind. He can't even see Jesus. Jesus heals him. And get this, Jesus comes back later and asks him, hey, by the way, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the, the guy who was once blind, he's like, I don't know who he is. Can you show me so I can believe? Like, I don't, I don't know who this Son of Man like, there's no faith. It has nothing to do with faith. And, uh, and, and later, the faith came, later, and yet God just still chose to heal him for, for whatever reason. But the ultimate killer of the just having a faith argument, the ultimate killer comes from a guy who probably said the most about faith in the whole Bible, and his name's Paul. Paul talks about this thing called the thorn in his flesh, right? Uh, so in 2 Corinthians, I have a thorn in my flesh, and no one knows exactly what it is, but you can at least say it's like a pretty gnarly impairment that made him come to God three times. Lord, remove my impairment. Remove my impairment. Remove my impairment. Three times. And what was Jesus' response? Do you remember? My grace is sufficient for you. And we have mixed feelings with that. And why? But why was Jesus' grace sufficient for you? Because, quote, my power is made perfect in weakness. I hope that starts feeling awesome to me soon. Because that feels horrible sometimes. But it's true. And what's so amazing about this is God takes the person with probably the most faith in the world. He wrote like 13 or 14 books of the Bible, Paul. God takes Paul, who's used mightily to plant the first whole wave of churches and expand the kingdom and unpack the gospel for all Christianity. And this guy, Paul, says, God, take away my impairment. And God's like, no. You know what that tells us, at least? Having disability does not mean you lack faith. Not remotely. So, so that's what I want to, I want to make that point there. And then, and then E, uh, people with disabilities, just like non-disabled people, are equally complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. So no matter what your physical traits are, you're complete in Christ. You come to Jesus, whatever body you have, and you're complete in Christ. Mind, body, soul, period. I'm not lacking in anything if I come to Christ with some physical characteristic that's different than another person's. This goes back to the image of God thing. That's why it's so important to root your view of the world, humanity, existence, in what it means to be God's image, every human being, in every body type. And so now we move to the second point of the three. It's individuals, dis, dis, individuals with disabilities in relation to themselves. The first one was in relation to God. Now it's how do they relate to themselves? This is the question we all ask, who am I? Who am I as a person with a disability? Who, ma who am I as a person without a disability? How do I understand myself? And so the first thing we have to shout from the rooftops, again, is that God makes all human beings with a purpose. You guys, this is where it starts to get mind-blowing for me. Uh, Exodus 4, it, <laughs> Exodus 4 says this 
in no uncertain terms. It's this fascinating moment. You remember Exodus 4, burning bush, and Moses is like at the burning bush, and God's like, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. I'm gonna give you the words. And he's like, I can't really do it. He's like, go tell Pharaoh, let people go. And Moses is like, all right, all right, right. Here's the problem. I can't speak well. I have an impairment. I actually have a speaking disorder. Uh, more and more scholars are thinking that he's, he was a stutterer which is an incredible example of God's strength being made perfect in human weakness and disability. You see what's happening here? Moses and Paul, two men who God used to kick off the Bible. Like who is more responsible for writing the Bible, God's word to humans, than Moses with a speaking issue and Paul with another impairment? God's like, I won't remove it from either of you, but I will display my strength to the world through your specific condition. We have the Bible because of these two disabled men of God. And now when, when Moses made the excuse, he's like, no, but I stutter. I, I, I have this disability. God responds, what did he say? Who made human mouths? You got it, Altia. He's like, so who gave humans their mouths, by the way, Moses? And then he says, to push it further, he says, who makes Human beings deaf or mute or blind, and I apologize if that's offensive to any of you, I genuinely do, but this is what's in the text. And, and he's like, who makes human beings with these things? He's like, is it not I, the Lord? And it's like, wait, wait, wait. I don't know how to process this. I'm very uncomfortable right now. This does not sit well with us. God makes human beings deaf, mute, and blind. Is that for real? And here's where you get into the upside down world of disability theology. Does God make human beings deaf, mute, and blind? The answer is an emphatic yes, and here's why. The deaf, the mute, and the blind are just as much made in God's image as everyone else, remember? We, we nail it all down in that. So of course God creates and dignifies deaf humans too. He creates and dignifies deaf humans equally with non-deaf humans. He creates and dignifies blind humans equally with non-blind humans or sighted or humans with speech disabilities. So listen to me, Exodus 4.11, where he's like, who made human mouths? And who, who, who made the ones that don't speak? and do, don't see, and do. If that means anything, you know what this means? God is not remotely ableist. <laughs> He's equally fans of the deaf as he is of the hearing. He's an equal fan of the sighted as he is of the blind. This should open us to the beauty of God's sight for us. Uh, he's not afraid of the deaf community. He doesn't think the blind or mute community are somehow less than. In fact, Exodus 4.11, it looks a lot like God is bragging on his deaf, blind, and mute children. He's like, who made these awesome people? Moses, are you saying you're afraid of being a stutter? Who made the stuttering community? They're pretty dope. Like, they're amazing. Moses is actually the ableist one here. He's like, I can't because I got this thing. 
He's like, God, I know you're calling me to this, and I think your words are true. Your words are calling me, but you don't understand. I have this thing. And Yahweh's like, you think? That's not new info to me. I invented all different kinds of mouths. Big mouths, small mouths, mouths that talk fast, mouths that talk really slow, silent mouths, loud mouths. I love all the mouths. I invented all of them, a diverse kaleidoscope of mouths. And ears too, by the way. And eyes, while we're on the topic, Moses. God's just bragging on his diverse kids right now. And they do all these different things and God's like, I delight in all of them. So Moses, put down your self-stigmatizing ableism and go to Pharaoh. And by the way, I'm gonna help you speak and tell you what to say anyway, because I said so, so just go. You guys, God is not ableist, we are. God doesn't attach negative stigma to disabilities and impairments, we do. Don't get me wrong, God absolutely is a God who heals. That's a whole other conversation. Healing is messy in this conversation. But God also, God heals, yes, and God affirms the value and dignity of people with disabilities as they are. You don't need a healing to be infinitely valuable because you are made in his image. It all goes back to that. It's us, it's we who need the perspective shift. It's we who need to recognize that God loves using people with disabilities as they are to accomplish his purposes and bring glory to himself. He doesn't have the stigma we put on it. Which leads us to be here, uh, letter B, individuals with disabilities are specifically created by God from the very inception of their lives. Psalm 139.13, David declares, you created me in my inmost being, you knit me in my mother's womb. We're all made in the image of God, but, but now we're getting, we're getting microscopic here. Making of the image of God in its cellular beginnings. God's like, I'm so into that part. I'm so into that part. People with impairments from that moment are fearfully and wonderfully made equally. Remember, scriptures apply to everyone the same. And then C, the upside down kingdom of Jesus invites us to see disability as evidence of the works of God. Again, back to John 9, right? Why was this man born blind? Not because of sin, but so that God's wonderful works will be on display. That's worth pondering over and over again. And back to Paul's thorn in the flesh. When Jesus tells Paul, hey, Paul, by the way, my power works best in weakness. We don't believe that. But God's trying to tell us this through the disability community in our churches. It's like, I, my power works best in weakness. My wisdom is most displayed in what culture calls foolishness. How does Paul see himself now? When God says that, my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul actually steps back and he goes, you know what, I believe that. Now I'm glad to boast in my weakness. Paul does a shift. He's like, I used to pray three times, and I still will maybe, we don't know. But he's like, for sure, I've learned gladness about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me where it couldn't have before. This is so counterintuitive with our society. We see someone with a weakness. We see someone who's, who we think is weak. And we're like, oh man, I'm so sorry you have that condition. And of course we should sympathize with pain, 
But we see someone with a, a weakness and we're like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you can't be like me or people who don't have that weakness. Aren't we all just so excited to get to heaven when you can finally jump around or whatever? Because that's obviously the way God wants you to be right now. And it's almost pandering. That is the gospel of ableism. Yes, we will all have equally all of our brokenness healed in the eternal state. But my goodness, does God have some power to show off. And Paul basically blows up that false gospel. He's like, no, so I'm delighting in my weakness. Why? Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. Heaven's going to be great for everybody equally. But we don't really know what that's going to look like. Meanwhile, the power of Christ is working through this body. So I take pleasure in this weakness having to do with this, this thorn and insults and hardships and persecutions. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm seeing it the way God does. This is 180 degrees different than the way our society thinks. We, when we think of a powerful person, we think physical height, size, attractiveness, intelligence, and wealth. That's what we think of when we think powerful. You guys, if the cross is doing anything, it is working all through history to turn our assumptions completely upside down, our definition of power. The biblical picture of a powerful person is a man or a woman with severe physical impairments and difficulties and delighting in the God who chose to disable himself by becoming human flesh and dying on a cross for them. The biblical picture of power is someone who's completely weak, completely out of control, and completely delighting in the God who controls everything and confident that their disabled body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is right now expanding his kingdom in the world through her joy, through her body, and through her suffering alongside Jesus. I love what Amos Young says here. Uh, he says, if people with intellectual disabilities represent the foolishness of the world, what hinders our viewing them as embodying the wisdom of God? Like if the world, if the world sees Naturally, foolishness and a problem to be solved, oh my gosh, well then obviously, according to Scripture, they're the solution to our problems. They're the power of God and the wisdom on display. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this means practically? Let's get practical. If you've ever interacted with people with disabilities, you know it's messy, right? Um, here at Park Hill Church, we want our church to become more welcoming, inclusive space for people with all kinds of disabilities, which means, you know what it means, we need to be up for the mess. We need to be up for the mess. And honestly, for the most part, I think we're used to a pretty focused, calm experience on Sunday mornings in our church. That's because we know what to do. We, we, most of us understand typical social cues. We know when to be quiet. We know when to stand. We know when to read out loud. We know when to come up for communion. And in our community groups, we know when to speak and how much speaking would be too much and not to say anything too startling, you know. But then what happens when you bring a person with mental illness into the group? That discussion time is going to be very different, isn't it? And so what do we do about that? We're like, you know what we do? And I'm just going to be kind of blunt. And I know I'm self-critiquing right now because I'm leadership at this church. But what we do is, you know, this person just isn't a good fit for this Bible study or community group. Uh, we have, but there's a church right over here that has a huge services department. And we're just essentially reject them. That's what we do. 
Um, rather than saying, I'm going to intentionally enter this church service right now or this Bible study or this community group with people who are going to be a lot harder for me to interact with than it would have been. What happens to you in that moment? Like, all right, I'm going to go in. I'm, I'm here for this. I'm here for the mess. What happens to you in that moment? You know what happens? You suddenly become weak. You suddenly become weak. Instead of coming to the community group like, oh, I got this. I have my people. I have my Bible. I have my notes. I have my prophetic word. I'm gonna, it's going to be amazing. I'm gonna con no, it's more like you <laughs> you're coming like King Jehoshaphat. You know the story of Jehoshaphat in the battle, 2 Chronicles 20? And he's like in the battlefield and there's all these enemies. There's no, he's like, I have no clue what to do, but Lord, my eyes are on you. Which is to become weak which is the gift that the disability community has to give to the church, that we all can become weak together. This is how the church is meant to thrive. You guys, we are meant to be a mess. We're not meant to have all our stuff together because humanness is messy. Being human is a messy. So I, I firmly believe, you guys, that disability in the church, keep... Right now we're in like the conversation phase and, uh, and, and we'd love to see more systems and more inclusivity, but I believe this, this conversation, disability in the church, is supposed to be God's ongoing gift to the church to remind a wealthy, clean, physically strong, comfortable church to remind us what true power and strength look like. True kingdom power looks like all God's kids clinging to one another in all our shared weakness, crying out to God together for his forgiveness and power and belonging equally needy at the table of Jesus. And some of us would do well to help others to that table on the way. So we need the mess to remind us that we're all weak. We're, we're actually all weak. Not just people with physical weaknesses or mental weaknesses or whatever. We need to intentionally, all of us, enter into messy ministry to each other because, you guys, when it's messy and there's no system, it's just a mess, uh, that drives us to a place where in our weakness we become strong. Why do we, why do we become strong in our weakness? Because instead of doing it in our own power, we say, Jesus, I have no idea what the heck I'm doing with this autistic child. I have no idea. I have no idea how to do community group with this person with borderline personality disorder. I have no idea. God, I don't know how I'm gonna navigate this severe impairment in my loved one, but Lord, I do know my eyes are on you. This is what disability in the church is meant to drive us to so, so that disabled and enabled are both having their eyes on Jesus together at the same time. And the reality is, this is important to acknowledge in this conversation, virtually all of us, did you know this? Have you thought this? Virtually all of us at one time or another, in one way or another, will become part of the disability community. So, so this is how Maria Town says it. She's the president of the American Association of People with Disabilities. She says, everyone will become disabled if they're lucky enough. Why? Aging is a privilege. Far too of us get the opportunity to live to a ripe old age. And if you do get the opportunity, you will likely become disabled. For me, disability is not necessarily a sign of weakness or a sign of competence. It's instead a sign of survival, resilience, and strength. Now, I have no idea if Maria Town is a Christian, but man, I think that's pretty stinking close to Paul, how he sees the world. The upside-down kingdom, ethic of weakness as strength. 
And the source of this, as Christians, we know, is a God who disabled himself to become our crucified king. And his spirit now empowers the global community called the church full of messy, diverse, differently abled bodies who exist to love, support, and care for each other in every way till the king returns to dwell with his people forever. Uh, By the way, this king has the scars still. The king bears the signs of impairment still. His resurrected body. Do you think of Jesus scarred? The primary picture of him in Revelation is the lamb, not without blemish, but the lamb who appears as though he's been slain. Appearing slain is not to appear perfect, right? Does that mess with categories? It should. Which brings us to the third and final point of this, this outline, you guys. I'm going to go quick. This, the individual with disabilities in relation to the whole community. And I think this one is where the church needs to come alive. We can, we can come alive to this as, as God's family. So we, we talked about disabled people in relation to God, in relation to himself. Now here's in relation to the whole community. This is where we'll land. So, so A, the community needs to recognize that people with disabilities are indispensable and worthy of special honor. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 22 through 26, Paul says it plainly. He says, the parts of the church body that seem weaker are actually the indispensable ones. He just preaches that as truth. We don't think that way. Again, we honor height, size, attractiveness, wealth, power, intelligence. The kingdom of God flips it around. The parts of the church body that seem weaker are indispensable. So who seems weaker? I think people with disabilities seem weaker to me, right? If a person with, we had a kid, an amazing kid named Gideon who had charge syndrome when we first planted this church, who was in our kids' ministry, Uh, Gideon seemed weaker to me. So what's my scriptural response to Gideon? Gideon's indispensable. He's indis- what does indispensable mean? I can't live without Gideon. If I got in an accident and lost one of my kidneys, and I asked you guys, would you donate a kidney to save my life? I don't want to show of hands right now, but, but my guess is some of you would say yes. Why? Because one kidney is dispensable. If I lost my liver in an accident... <laughs> And I'm like, hey, I'm dying. Can I have a liver? You, no, it, it, there's laws against that. You can't do that because a liver is a body part that's indispensable. And so the, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable, which means they should be here. I can't have a living body without these parts. Now, a step further, if I'm indispensable to you, if, you, if you're like, Evan, I can't live without you in my church. If I'm indispensable to you, there's a degree that I have power over you now. You can't live without me, then I have some power over you. You're like, I can't live without you. That's power. Now, what you could do is exclude me and pretend like I don't have that power. And you can hide me behind curtains so my indispensable nature is not seen. And that's most often what we do to the disabled community. Unfortunately, we put them in a room for special needs. Maybe that, or we'll give them a program. But in so many ways, people with disabilities are indispensable to us, and the things that they would bring would change our church. 
And the power that they have over us that we should embrace, we're supposed to just have that power, make us see how weak we are too. And Paul says in that verse, in, in those verses, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, those we think have less honor, we treat with special honor here in this church. Those who we first assume are less honorable are the ones who get the most honor in the kingdom. So what does that look like? What does it mean to honor someone? Uh, my son, Jaden, he goes up to Portland to visit his girlfriend. They're doing this long-distance relationship thing that seems pretty serious. And I'm kind of, I'm coming to grips with it. <laughs> and, he, and let's say he comes home early. I wasn't expecting him. He comes home and he's like, Dad, I'm home. He raids the fridge. And, and, and I'm like, oh, I wasn't expecting you. What do I do? I'm like, I wasn't, do I say, I wasn't expecting you. You need to get back on the plane and come back on the day that you said you'd come back because we're not ready for you. I actually don't want to deal. That's not what I do to my son. Uh, he is a guest of honor. More than that, he is a literal son. So I set, the, I set the table a day early. I give him a whole extra day of food. You know what I mean? <laughs> because honor. Now a family with a, a low-functioning autistic child walks into church and we say, yeah, you should probably go down the street to the other church. They have great services. We're not equipped for your child. The answer to, we do not do that. That is not what we want to do. Our response is, because we love our neighbor, everything is set for you now. We set the table in our community for you now. You weren't here before. You showed up. Now you are. My goodness, honor. So, so what, what do we do with people we think are less honorable? We show them special honor. That's Paul's command. So how do we show People who inconvenience us, honor. Guess what? I can't do the things I always did before. I may have to do something different now. In my community group, I may have to set up uh, the, the staircase differently or baby gates and baby, whatever. I, I can't. This is the hard part, though. We don't want to change. We don't want to change the way we do things. I mean, I love the way Park Hill feels on a Sunday. You can hear lots of babies cry, Right? There's like babies and so for a while we had like a lot of dogs, which was interesting. Um, I don't know what happened to the dogs, but I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest here. There's babies and there were dogs, but, but you can only hear the occasional person with a mental disability making a peep in our church. What does that tell us? It tells us that maybe because of the traditions and cultural pieces that I'm primarily responsible for establishing, because of that, there's a lot of people who should be present that aren't in our church. Guests of honor. So, and, then, and then B, we're getting to the end, guys. So God's sovereignty for the community. Sovereignty means he's large and in charge. Full jurisdiction. God's sovereignty for the community. So 1 Corinthians 12, 18 is amazing. You know what it says? It's, Paul says, quote, in fact, God has placed every part of the body exactly where he wants them to be in the body. So you look around, it's his doing. God did them. God brought them. God placed them right here, right now. And look, they seem weaker, which means they get more honor. They seem, they seem inconvenient, which means they get more time. Because God put them here. They're not here because they just decided to come only. Everyone is here because God placed them here. 
1 Corinthians 12, 18 specifically says this about the body of Christ. And then C, the uh, individual in the community should be celebrated. Not only are they indispensable, worthy of honor, not only did God put them here, but they should be celebrated. Paul, you know, this goes back to Paul. Paul's like, now I see what God is up to. I'm going to delight in this weakness. And I know it's easier said than done. And again, I want to locate myself as an able-bodied man, enabled. I do not have a disability right now. Um, and I, I realize this is mixed with pain and also joy. But Paul, Paul, Paul knows that too. We can take Paul's word. He's like, I delight in my weakness. So you know what that means? The church delights in our weakness. We should celebrate. Figure out ways to celebrate. And I'm up for suggestions on that. Again, I'm new to this conversation. I want to see this happen more at Park Hill Church. And so what does it look like to celebrate? Uh, one, one guy I read said, actually celebrate Down syndrome. In your community, there's a person with Down syndrome say, Down syndrome, and, and, and celebrate that, especially this is how he accomplished this. and this is how he's, I don't know what that looks like, but it's something to be named, not ignored. It's not something to be hidden, but something to be celebrated. I'm going to celebrate X condition in our community group. What is that? And then next, this one's amazing. A disabled individual in the community, it reveals who the true neighbors are. Who's really a neighbor? Uh, so you guys, you know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? What's the point of, the point of the Good Samaritan story <laughs> is the, the really religious people were like, but who is really the neighbor that I should worry about? In the story, who's the neighbor? Well, one of the neighbors is the guy laying on the ground, unable to get up. And what does that guy on the ground do in the story? This is fascinating. I will never read the Good Samaritan story the same way again. The guy laying on the ground with the disability inflicted upon his body powerfully revealed who the true neighbors are. So much power in that man's weakness powerfully revealed who the truth, and all he was doing was lying there, and everything was coming to light. Without, doing, without moving a muscle, he's revealing who the true Jesus-following neighbors are, and it turns out the good religious people aren't the ones. There's more to say about that, but moving on, uh, E, reveals lack, so people with disabilities in the church reveal lack of understanding. And that's, you know, James 2 verse 1. It's about favoritism. It reveals how we subtly play favorites. If you favor certain people above, above others, James is very clear. That calls into question your basic understanding of Christianity. We all are tempted to play favorites. And when we play favorites, we are calling into question our knowledge of Jesus. And then finally, uh, one writer said that this is the only difference between people with disabilities and people without disabilities. This is the only, like, when it comes to the kingdom of God, this is, this, is the, this is the primary difference. And it's to whom much is given, much is required. Everyone's equally made in the image of God. All scripture equally applies to all Christians, to all human beings, regardless of embodiedness. Everyone is equally welcome to become saved and to respond to the gospel. Everyone has a gift to bring. Everyone has a word to share. Everyone has a gift. But the one difference, to whom much is given, much is acquired. Otherwise, we're totally equal. And so the key thing in all of this is it's all about relationships, you guys. It's just, that's why we're here. I, 
I want to know you. I, I want to be known by you. And you want to know each other and known by each other and, and continue to be in the heart of this church. Continue to bring your gifts to your community groups. Continue uh, to seek to know those and invite those to be included who have severe impairments even. Invite them to be included in the life of Park Hill Church. And we'll take time. Uh, Stanley Harawas, probably the most famous disability theologian, started work on this in the 70s. He, he made up this word that has been part of the conversation for 50 years. It's called timefulness. Timefulness. This is the gift that people with disabilities give to the church. It's an awareness that, oh, time is a gift from God, and I can live in it with patience. And when I'm being required to give more time to someone who needs it, I'm becoming closer to God. And, and just we're so quick to move and to be productive and to think of what works best for us. And so the most important thing we can do, uh, if, if, you, if, you're in, if you are enabled, you're, you're not living with a disability, the most important thing you can do for a person with disabilities is invite them into friendship. And obviously, we're all created equally in, in the image of God. And so I would say the same thing the other way around. Uh, the most important thing you can do as a disabled person is to invite someone that's enabled into friendship and, and continue growing deeper and deeper in uh, equal knowing and being known. Um, yeah, that's, I, I have some more stuff, but it's not as important as what I've said. So I'm going to end it there. And Aaliyah is going to talk in a bit. I, we're not going to have Q&A on the screen like we normally do. Um, I'd love to talk one-on-one if you, if you want to come up to me or whatever. I don't have all the answers. I just want to hear your stories and the stories that you bring to the church. And I want to meet your loved ones with disabilities and all that. And, and then a couple minutes, yeah, there's the resources. And then when you come back in about five to ten minutes, there will be questions on the screen to prompt discussions. And then Aaliyah is going to come and tell her story. And it will be all the richer for it. So let me pray. Heavenly Father. Let's just be still before him, Heavenly Father. We need, we need you. All of us need you. And we need each other. All of us need each other. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us just a peace that passes understanding. If any words were said that were jarring or offensive or not of you, I pray that um, you'd correct me, you'd cover with grace, but also correct as we walk forward together as the messy but committed body of Christ. Show us what we're missing that you would have us see. Show us where we're not listening and you'd have us hear and obey. Speak, Lord. Your servant's here. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, guys, what special conversations, at least around our table. Beautiful things to contemplate. Um, if we haven't met, I'm Aaliyah. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's so good to be with you guys and consider these things. Um, what a special crew to start the conversation um, for disability in Park Hill Church. So I'm just grateful 
I'm grateful for tonight, grateful for this conversation. So yeah, I'm going to share a little bit of my story. Um, I really have never done this before, and this is not something that I typically feel confident talking about, so bear with me. So here's a weird start. You didn't think we'd get political tonight. But every Wednesday, Senator Mitch McConnell, I'm just kidding, we're really not going to talk about politics. <laughs> But really, actually, this is a story. This is a story about him, but I'm not making any claims politically. So every Wednesday, Senator Mitch McConnell, he holds a news conference at the Capitol. So he'll take the podium and he gives updates in front of various news outlets with cameras rolling. So on July 26, Senator McConnell froze. He stopped speaking and he just stared off into the distance. And it was really awkward as seconds went by you could feel the tension building. You weren't sure, like nobody knew what to do. So pretty soon he was escorted uh, away from the podium and back to his office, but not before he tried to head in the wrong direction. And it's all on live news, so it's, it's weird. A member of his staff quickly took the podium and finished the updates, but it was kind of too late. So news outlets and Twitter, it was already a trending topic before I think he even made it back to his office. And lots of speculation started flying, opinions, everybody becomes an expert. And it's, he's too old, he needs to be in a nursing home. Or maybe it's, uh, I saw a few tweets that were, uh-oh, looks like the aliens accidentally hit pause. Mostly cruel jokes. So I'm not a medical professional, and I really don't claim to know what happened that day. Um, but for whatever it was that did happen to him, it looked like something that is really familiar for me. So I spent a few minutes scrolling tweets related to the trending topic, and it was interesting to watch the reactions and hot takes. And I came to a comment that said this. It's obvious none of you have seen seizures in real life. Not all episodes are as dramatic as movies. People with disabilities don't always look like what you'd imagine. And then I so appreciated this person because they said, people with disabilities are among us. Figure out how to cope. And it was sharp and it was healing because there is this edge in the disability community, that's like you have to figure out how to live with people who have disabilities. So for 22 years, I've experienced a disability that doesn't present itself visibly very often, um, but for me, it's constant. So today, our conversation is about disability as it relates to the church. And I'm not here as an expert on the topic. I hope we've made that clear. This is just step one in getting the conversation going. Um, but I am one perspective and one person that has a perspective on the, the largest marginalized people group, not just in the US, but in the world. So if I'm being honest, sharing this is hard. It's something I've kept close. So I'll ask for grace as I share details of my life. <laughs> so while my story is full of things that I've had to surrender, I also want to crack the door on something beautiful, on how God is true to his word, how he's miraculous, and he works through disability in beautiful ways. So here's my story. 
When I was 13, I was misdiagnosed with what doctors said couldn't be anything but early onset multiple sclerosis, the youngest um, person they'd ever found with the symptoms of this. So multiple sclerosis is a degenerative disease and it attacks the nervous system, it causes physical, mental, and psychiatric problems. It looks like muscle weakness, it looks like pain and attacks on the body. Um, and it leaves neurological damage and it increases as time goes on. So a few weeks after my 13th birthday, I was just standing in front of a mirror, drying my hair, getting ready to go to a friend's house, and I just hit the floor. My knees kind of gave out, and my dad happened to be walking by. He was like, what was that? I was like, I don't know. And I stood up, and we went on with our day. So in the following weeks, it kept happening. I noticed I would just hit the floor. It was weird. Um, not painful, but just kind of my legs would give out. And I remember sitting at a birthday party, a junior high birthday party, and all of a sudden I looked down at my hands and I was like, I don't think these are mine. Like I'm looking at someone else's body. And I tried to figure out how could I articulate this to my other 13 year old friends at this party, but all I could think of was my neighbor who smoked weed that said things like, dude, are these my hands? Is this even my body? And I was like, nope, I'm not gonna try and explain that. So I just sat. And within 15 minutes, the weird feeling had passed, so I didn't say anything to anyone. So my symptoms after that day really kind of felt like a spiral. I couldn't explain what I was feeling, but things were misfiring. I always felt weird, but I could not figure out how to communicate to anybody what was going on. So there was nausea, there was numbness, there was brain fog, muscle pain, fatigue, exhaustion. This kind of sounds like one of those commercials where people are like walking their dog. You know? So finally, about three weeks after my first symptom, I had what doctors initially called a stroke. And so I lost full control of my body, my speech was slurred, and I stuttered, and I struggled my way through trying to tell my parents what was happening, as they called paramedics. They couldn't understand me, and then finally I just lost all control, and, and then I couldn't understand them. There was not only something physically happening, but there was something neurologically off. So I couldn't process what they were saying. So we went to the hospital and we had a long and honestly traumatic experience, as hospitals can be. So it was full of the usual pokes and exams and questioning from multiple um, social workers who wanted to make sure I wasn't experiencing child abuse. So even though I didn't have full control of my speech, I was separated from my parents trying to explain what was happening and I had no idea. So I remember a doctor coming into my hospital room at about 3 a.m. and demanding that I try to walk, and I told him I, I can't, and he assured me that I was being dramatic and helped me up, and I just remember immediately falling into a tray, bruised my whole side, it was rough, and then in the following days, social workers had questions about the bruises on my body, which is good. They were trying to make sure I was safe, but it's, it's rough. This is just the experience that is not clean for many people who experience medical treatment. So after that night and a CT scan, a stroke was ruled out, and what happened was called a seizure from that point on. So I'd have three to six seizures on average per week, and after, um, after each one, it took a minimum of a few hours to not stutter or struggle to speak, and what was even harder is it would take a little bit longer to really get back on track and understand people understand just conversation. 
So there's an impact on my cognitive, physical, and emotional health. There was nausea, there was fatigue, a whole bunch of other weird symptoms just increasing. And it was tough, and the anxiety definitely started to set in. So I spent months seeing all kinds of doctors, having every kind of exam you could think of, and the initial conclusion, like I said, was that it was the earliest case of multiple sclerosis my doctors had seen. The definition of multiple sclerosis seemed too accurate to be wrong. With each seizure, they saw negative neurological impact when they would do tests. And I remember one particular doctor telling me after a sleep deprivation test as I was pulling glue out of my hair from an EEG that all the signs of multiple sclerosis were there. From what he could see, it was progressing rapidly. And he said, he said this, it most likely means a wheelchair by high school and I can't imagine you'll have much of a physical life past 25. So this, I'm sure you can guess, has a profound impact on how you view your life Marriage, kids, college, even dating kind of seemed out the window for me as a 13-year-old. So an immediate prayer for my, myself, my friends, my family was that MS would not be the diagnosis. So after months, I remember my pediatrician calling with the news. No definitive signs of MS had shown up on tests. She warned that this could change and it could show up later. Um, but for now, her opinion was that I should rest easy. So my family and friends who knew celebrated, but something that I didn't anticipate when I laid down that night and had another seizure was the, the despair. An inconclusive diagnosis really did feel like a sentence. To have no option or plan for medical treatment when all of your symptoms are still present and suffering is kind of hard to explain. Um, a few neurologists asked me to keep a journal that they could review. They wanted to help, and I did it for a while, but then I stopped because focusing on what was happening with my body in moments when I actually wasn't experiencing pain um, was too much. So to them, it was interesting, and for me, it was reliving trauma. Multiple sclerosis was always in the back of my mind. So in life, for the most part, um, it really was easier not to explain my undiagnosed issues, and it was easier to seem like a flaky, sleepy teenager than to share my daily experience with people around me. So there's a very real fear of being left out of life. When you can't explain your disability and all the mental energy that goes into knowing yourself, being sure you can handle the situations that you're walking into, it's easier to not say anything and just to manage alone. So when you share, you quickly lose your personhood and a problem in, in your problem to solve or a liability. So when your presence brings anxiety and the water you swim in is weird questions and advice or restriction from doing things you love, you quickly learn that it's not worth it. So of course, through the years, I, I needed to share when signs would show. Um, and I've tried. I tried for the sake of vulnerability and authenticity. And I heard common statements, you're sure to hear, from well-meaning people if you're a part of the disabled community, especially in the church. And here's a few of them. Everything happens for a reason. 
You just have to have more faith. You should pray for healing. My legs fall asleep when I sit on the floor. Maybe that's it. It could always be worse. I wouldn't even know you had any problems. So are you sure that actually happens? So this might be God's judgment for sin in your life. Have you tried essential oils? Have you gone to the doctor? So there, there is a prosperity gospel elephant in the room when it comes to disability, and it's this, health and healing. What this means is that usually without realizing it, as Christians, we hold aspects of a false gospel that promise nothing will harm us if we do what we are supposed to. It's a transactional decoy Jesus that's on offer. And it tells us that if someone is disabled, a sin has been committed, and this is punishment in some form. So Amy Kenny, who wrote, uh, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, puts it this way. To suggest that I'm anything less than a sanctified and, re and redeemed is to suppress the image of God in my disabled body and to limit how God is already at work through my life. So this narrative, this narrative that, that dis disability is caused by sin, loses what the New Testament calls the mystery of the gospel. You see, Jesus in John 16 promises, in this life you will have trouble. This is not surprising to Jesus. There's something so comforting about that. So we rest in the now and not yet, where we hold tension as people, who've not experienced healing, but who get to experience God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We do this while we pray and trust and seek the spirit to heal others. I've seen people healed in my life. It's beautiful. I want more of it. I want healing for others. We do this every, every month as a church at Seek for Sunday. We worship and we pray and we seek the gifts of the spirit. Healing is among those things. And I I do that joyfully, but it's not a reality for me. So as we surrender our identities at the foot of the cross, this is our job as Christians, disabled or abled. We are called to surrender our identities at the foot of the cross, and Jesus takes them, and he redeems them in all kinds of beautiful ways, including those who remain in their disabled identity. So the disability bears the image of God fully. Evan talked about this. We've been promised Jesus. We've been promised wholeness by being brought into his bodily death and resurrection. Jesus, a wounded healer. Jesus, who was willing to reveal his wounds so that Thomas could leave his doubt and believe. What a picture, a wounded God, an incarnate, resurrected, imperfect body who is willing to dispel doubt. How we approach individuals who are disabled should be radically shaped with an understanding of how God views them as vital and functioning parts of the body of Christ. So I learned how to hide this part of myself that was confusing to others and made them worry. I learned how to hide um, and I didn't have to hear well-meaning but unthoughtful comments. 
I did have a close-knit group of friends who knew. They knew what to say. I could be honest. I had deep community with people who knew what to do when I experienced a seizure. I was so lucky to have that. We need community. And it can be people who are abled or disabled. This is how the body of Christ is supposed to work. We have different abilities, and we need each other. So it's been 22 years of experiencing most of these things, and I still don't have a diagnosis. Um, I can tell you my symptoms ebb and flow. Some seasons, it's not as present, and some seasons, it's more intense. So I've found incredible gifts that relieve and make my sim symptoms less frequent, and I'm thankful for those. But there hasn't been full healing uh, that many have prayed over me. There's a constant awareness of the state of my body that at any time I could have a seizure and have no option but to wait it out and experience the after effects without being able to explain it to those around me. So paying attention to every warning sign that I'm in a safe place when these episodes happen. Uh, it's amazing the mental load that becomes commonplace and the small and big life alterations that become second nature. This is obviously not limited to me. The word disability encompasses so many people. Seizures, headaches, neurodivergent, everything. So many unseen and seen disabilities take a mental load that's hard to communicate if you haven't experienced it. But here's what I can say um, without a doubt. It might feel like this story comes to an abrupt end, and that's because there's not always a beautiful bow or packaging to put on stories like this. But Tim Keller has an incredible book on pain and suffering, and this is what he says. I always knew in principle that Jesus is all you need to get you through, but you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. This is a lived experience for many people. The only way I can see my story truly, is through the lens of the gospel. All of the incredible ways that God has been and continues to be true to his word through my suffering. So this is not to put a bow on suffering, like I said, um, but rather this is a very real peace that surpasses understanding. The Philippians 4 talks about hope that hovers over the chaos of circumstances. So suffer suffering is a theological theme that is constantly present in scripture. It comes with hope and it comes with a promise of strength. So just a few days after receiving a non-diagnosis when I was 13, I brought my grief to God. It was really ugly. It was very angry at him. Um, I was full of so much anxiety that I couldn't tell what was the beginnings of a seizure and what was a panic attack. So I really did reach a point where I was able to tell God, I gave you my life. Part of my story is that I have known Jesus, I would say, since as early as I can remember. I remember telling him, I gave you my life, but this isn't what I had in mind. So I really need you to be here with me in this. This is the part that I love which will make me cry more than sad things. Jesus is so near. 
through scripture, <clears throat> through prayer, and especially moments when I couldn't move. Jesus was near to me as he says he will be to the brokenhearted. And in the span of a few days, it seemed like I could not open my Bible without it speaking directly to my situation. So suffering did bring scripture to life at that young age in a way that I, I couldn't and wouldn't want to trade. So Romans 8, while I was experiencing physical and neurological distress, this, listen to this, the spirit helps us in our weakness when we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. This is my reality. When I couldn't even think to form a prayer, the Spirit gave me deep union with God. And then I read this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is a promise. And in Romans 5 it says, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I can say that these scriptures and God who enters our realities has been the thing I am most grateful for in life. Yes, there have been and there will be moments and seasons of disillusionment and pain and anger and questioning God, but in all of these, God has been near and has been faithful to strengthen my trust and my hope in him. He's given me a deep understanding of hope and what the Apostle Paul called in the midst of his own suffering, the glory we will enjoy for all of eternity. So again, Amy Kinney, um, gives us this framework about Jacob, and she, she says, my body has a name. She identifies with Jacob, and she says, one who, my body's name is one who wrestled with God. This resonates so deeply, and it's important to remember that as Jacob walks away from this interaction with God, he isn't healed. He walks away with a limp and a blessing. So my personal journey has not been one marked by has not been one marked by fear and disappointment. Those moments are unavoidable, but my journey has been overwhelmingly marked by the goodness of God. So this has been true of friends that I've made throughout the years who are part of the disability community. This depth and understanding, the ability to persevere, the ability to be fully dependent on the Spirit. In our weakness, God truly is strong. So we're talking about disability in the church, and I, I want to talk for a minute to my able-bodied friends. So like I said, I'm not an expert. I do not have five steps on how to make your church a great space for the disabled. Like Evan said, all suggestions welcome. We want to be these people. But I do know you, as people in Park Hill Church, deeply care and hold space for marginalized people. So when we approach marginalized people groups, especially for majority culture Americans, me included, we find ourselves trying to come up with answers and explanations and solutions to problems. 
or more accurately put, really, when we think about it, how do we eliminate the uncomfortable reality of people who look different? Although we should be people of action, ready to meet needs, to be catalysts for real and helpful change, action, in my opinion, is not the first mode of inclusion for most marginalized people. People are not issues. People are not homogenous. People cannot have the same lived experience and experiences, and as a result, will not have identical perspectives or needs or solutions. But here's a question. When you think about how to make a church more welcoming, space for the disabled community, what do you think of? I think immediately I think of a ramp for wheelchairs. It's important. Maybe not asking everyone to stand or acknowledging that in the room there are people who cannot stand for the reading of scripture. Or maybe it's being aware and grabbing coffee for someone who can't make it down and back up the stairs in our, our greeting time to grab a cup of coffee. So these are good things. Let's do these things and keep working to become people who are always growing in hospitality and awareness. Being doers is actually part of how God designed us. As humans and as the church, we have a God-given propensity to want to do. We were created to cultivate and give life and be people of action who make the world a better place with our talents and with our God-given resources. We want to make deposits into others' lives that leave value, and we want to function in our spiritual gifts. So this desire is the same for those who are disabled in the church. The disabled community want to be people who do and deposit and use spiritual gifts. So yes, let's make accommodations, but let's realize that there's so much more in this conversation. If you're able-bodied, get to know those who are disabled or get to know the parents who have disabled children. There's so much suffering for parents who are walking with their children through disability. There's that depth of suffering that's there so deeply. And before offering a perspective or advice or even encouragement, spend some time listening. And then if you sense some resolve in their journey, ask as a learner, how has God been faithful to you? Hear their wisdom. Hear their dreams and their desires and ask them where they have seen God move radically through their disability. Because he will do it. Be encouraged by those who experience disability. Instead of only seeing yourself as a resource, see people from the disability community as a resource for you. This is a gift. All parts of the body want to be used and want to function. And to my disabled friends, does this resonate with you? Have you experienced this deep joy that comes from knowing God and having him walk with you in the dark moments and the joyful moments? You are a deep well who has experienced Jesus in ways that others haven't. The body of Christ and the church needs you. It needs you as a person who has disability. So being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So if you're in the midst of wrestling with God, if you're in that reoccurring season of disillusionment or disappointment or a whole host of other things that come with wrestling, God desires to be in it with you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is rest in Jesus. We can take breaks and ask questions, and then we can wrestle in his presence. Trust that there's a deep and grounded blessing in the difficulty of walking through life with a limp, just like Jacob. So your presence is vital for a church to be the fully flourishing body of Christ. So needed. That's my baby crying. And that's all I have. <laughs> oh. Thanks. I think we have just a few more thoughts, but can we close in prayer? Father, just thank you for this room of people who desire to see your church be more whole. Thank you that this is your heart. Thank you for being a wounded healer. Thank you for being a God who came near. We ask that you would, you would help this moment be something where your spirit is able to begin moving in Park Hill Church and beyond, to be a church that is inclusive that is fully represented. Thank you, God, that this is who you are. Amen.